Hey, it's Leah. Before we start this episode, I just wanted to tell you about this other show called Stuff the British Stole. It's from CBC Podcast and Australia Radio National, and it's got all the story elements I love. It's got colonial theft. It's got museums denying that theft. It's got intrigue. It's got jokes by Australians. Join host Mark Fresnel as he picks one artifact and takes you on the wild, evocative, sometimes funny, and often tragic adventure of how it got to where it is today. Check it out on the same thing that you're listening to this on or on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, Leah. Hey, Phelan. So today I wanted to take a look back at some film history. Timely, very timely. As I've made it clear on this show, all I do is binge watch things. I'm very looking forward to looking at some film stuff. Right now I'm watching, thank you for asking, I'm watching Love Island. (laughs) You don't care. And I'm watching The Undoing with Nicole Kidman, which I, I very much recommend if you like Big Little Lies because essentially it's Big Little Lies except now she's in New York and she wears capes. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to the film angle you're going. It'll be kind of like binge watching film history this episode. Great. So I wanted to take a look at some film history. I wanted to look at the National Film Board, uh, often called the NFB, and an initiative that they were a part of, the Indian film crew. And we're not talking about South Asian Canadians, right? When you say Indian, we're talking about quote-unquote Indian as in Indigenous. Yes, you've got it. So we've talked about the Indian film crew a few times on the show, so I thought today we could, you know, look into how the crew came to be, some of the films that were made, and what the lasting impact has been of the crew. I'm into it. Sounds good. This is The Secret Life of Canada, a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. So before we can talk about the Indian Film Crew or the IFC, we need to talk about how we got a national film board. So in 1918, the Exhibits and Publicity Bureau was created in Canada, and it was actually the first national film production unit in the world. Its goal was to produce films that promoted Canadian industry and trade. So it was like a marketing tool, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And I know we've talked a lot about this, about how Mm -hmm. marketing and history kind of go hand in hand. Canada's good at that marketing, I have to say. Mm -hmm. So that's exactly what it was. It was a marketing tool. So in 1923, the name was changed to the Canadian Government Motion Picture Bureau. Sounds fun. Woo. Splashy. (laughs) Um, But it still pretty much had the same mandate. In the 1930s, we see the film industry being dominated by the U.S. And so, you know, an effort was made to get more Canadian films onto screens and into theaters. So this was a thing even then, you know, needing needing more Canadian content because we had yeah. so many films and so much content from the U.S. Yes. So in 1938, the federal government got this Scottish filmmaker named John Grierson to come over to Canada and write a report about why the Canadian film landscape wasn't doing so well. This guy, John Grierson, he produces a report, you know, like in a month. And he's basically the best report writer of all time. Really, though? I mean, lest we forget Tom Cruise and his minority report, Phelan. I feel like you talk about Tom Cruise in every episode It's now. true. It's a thing. It's becoming a problem with me. I'm just watching a lot of his movies. I don't know why. And okay, okay. Uh, it's a thing to explore after this <laughs> period ends. All right. So John Grierson is the second best report writer. Okay, fair. So the recommendation of the report is for the Canadian government to adopt a centralized policy that would promote Canada abroad and foster unity amongst Canadians at home. Grierson then wrote a bill to establish a national film commission. So this is prior 
to it being called the Film Board. And it would primarily produce and distribute Canadian films to promote an image of Canada at home and abroad. Okay. Right. So again, that marketing thing. Right. Gotcha. And in March of 1939, the bill to establish a National Film Commission was given royal assent and the National Film Board was established. And, you know, we've talked about royal assent before, but just as a reminder, it's when the governor general or one of their deputies gives a bill approval or royal assent Mm -hmm. on behalf of the king or queen. So it's like saying the queen is good with your plans and everything is a go. It's still weird that they do this, but that's royal assent in a nutshell. Yes. Thank you. Very good summary. So later on in 1939, World War II broke out, and that really pushed the government to hire a commissioner of this newly ascended National Film Board, and they quickly settled on John Grierson. That seems like an obvious choice. Yeah. Even though he was Scottish, You know, you would think that the National Film Board would be headed by a Canadian, um, but they just kind of needed someone fast. So there were a couple of other candidates in line, but again, the war really pushed the NFB to hire someone and fast. So what kind of films was the NFB making at this point? At this moment, during wartime, there were a lot of newsreels. Already patrolling the seas outside the harbor are the destroyers that will form the convoy's escort. Lean, speedy ships armed to the teeth and carrying a complement of over 100 Canadian seamen. Like monks they look, muffled in their hooded suits against the bitter cold. But cold is a small matter these days. This is the real thing. War. Newsreels were pretty important. They were the only way that people could see what was going on in the world. Right. This was pre-TV. You could read the paper or listen to the radio, per se. But if you wanted to see the news, you could really only do that by going to a movie theater. So they would play the newsreels before the main feature. Yes. And now you just see a thousand commercials. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. So by 1945, the NFB had a staff of almost 800 employees and had created over 500 films and was one of the largest film studios in the world. They even established an animation unit at this time, which, you know, to me just sounds so contemporary and like cutting edge. Mm -hmm. The one thing I know about the NFB is how worldwide they became known for their animation. Like it was so, so good. So when do we start to see indigenous content, though, created by the NFB? I mean, when does the Indian film crew come on the scene? Right. Well, that takes a bit. During these early years of the NFB, indigenous people were only portrayed as subjects in films, silent on camera, seen but never heard. And They really had no say in how they were seen. Many of these films during the 40s and 50s were in an ethnographic style. Mm, That sounds bad. I don't really... I know it does, right? I'm not completely clear on the definition of ethnographic, but it feels wrong. So please explain it to me and, and confirm my fears. Yeah. Okay. So ethnographic films are like documentaries, um, but they often have more of an anthropological quality to them. Like, they're kind of like documentaries. Actually, John Grierson, the first NFB film commissioner that we're talking about, he coined the term documentary filmmaking. Oh, that's so interesting. Not a Canadian invention, but kind of. You're really like, John Grierson was no Canadian, folks. Let's. I know. Get... Well, I don't well, know why that's... I, like, I don't care. It's interesting, <laughs> though, because so many of our prime ministers were Scottish mm-hmm. or British, you know, like, it's just kind of what was happening at the time. Yeah. So a lot of these are early films at the NFB, they had a similar style, a sort of booming voice of God while images of Indigenous people played on the screen. But, you know, why take my word for it, Leah? Let's take a listen to a bit from (laughs) Eskimo Arts and Crafts from the 1944 film 
uh, directed and produced by Laura Bolton. Oh, Lord, it's going to make me sad. Okay, here we go. So necessary in hunting, make the Eskimos eager for any excuse to have a celebration. Occasionally, a camp will hold a drum dance night after night. Drumming, dancing, and singing refresh the spirits of the whole community. Lost in the magic of primitive rhythm, the Eskimo can forget the severity of his life. And it does make me sad. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's actually not as bad as I was expecting it to be, but it's as bad as I was expecting it to be. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's interesting to me that it's directed and produced by a woman, actually. Her specifically. She was was a music anthropologist. I'm not sure if that's the right wording for it. Anyway, she studied music of, you know, of others. So she, you know, kind of recorded things on wax cylinders. And anyway, so this film was a part of the People of Canada series. And this series featured other films like People of the Potlatch and Totem. And they all had a similar style, an outsider looking in. And many of these films portrayed Indigenous people as vanishing, a group of people who were on their way to no longer existing, who would become extinct. And, you know, I should say that the NFB has a disclaimer on some of these films on their website, um, citing that they were made almost 70 years ago and that that should be considered while viewing. And I couldn't find out exactly when those disclaimers came in, but I kind of like that they're there. It's kind of like saying, we know that this is problematic, but... It also doesn't erase it. You know, it's a way of like kind of owning it. Yeah, definitely. I've noticed that in a lot of archival stuff now in a lot of libraries or just different museums that there is a disclaimer that says, you know, this was of the time. This isn't appropriate anymore, but we're leaving it up as this was what was happening at the time. And I'm I'm actually really happy about that because most of the NFB stuff that I've seen is so valuable in just in terms of giving a face to that time and seeing people, you know, Mm -hmm. it's great. I'm glad that they do it. Yeah. And I mean, I think these films miss the mark in a lot of ways, but there's something really nice about seeing these people, you know, because these films captured things that may have been lost sometimes language like sometimes song i mean actually the language song thing makes me think of jeremy dutcher's work you know mm-hmm He's a elastic musician who uses, he uses actually wax cylinder recordings in his work. So he will sing and play piano over recordings of his ancestors. And if some, you know, musicologist hadn't gone in and probably rudely mm-hmm. recorded people in the time, that would be lost. So, you know some positives. It makes me think of Tanya Tagak, the Inuit throat singer, who has performed live over footage of the 1922 film Nanook of the North. And Nanook of the North wasn't an NFB film, but it was very much a product of that time. And I think you can see some parallels in that film and some of the work the NFB was doing at this time. The film Nanook of the North was uh, produced and directed by Robert Flaherty, and it portrays a romantic and fictionalized idea of the North, and it presents it as truth. Right. So things are being reclaimed in many ways, mostly by artists. So that's great. Yeah. And, you know, and to see the faces of some of these people, it is really moving. There's something nice about, you know, being able to witness them as complicated as it all is. 
In the 50s, television started to become more commonplace in homes in Canada. The NFB repurposed some of its early films and repackaged them as television shows. One of these programs was called Window on Canada, and it aired on the brand new TV station, CBC. Films in the series were documentaries like Antogee, Story of an Eskimo Boy. And again, these films had a romantic quality to them. And having them on TV would make them more widely viewable. So it could really be damaging in perpetrating the mythology that, you know, Indigenous people were disappearing and that Mm -hmm. their way of life was disappearing. Yes, yes. I've always kind of wondered why there were so many films made about the North and Inuit life. I've wondered that too. And I, you know, I think there are a few factors in that. The North in Canada, I think at this time, was still seen as exotic and untouched, remote. And... Settlers were fascinated by it, Mm -hmm. you know, and I also think it has something to do with the technology of the time. Cameras were becoming more portable, but also like if you got to the north, you'd probably not want to like shoot your film and leave right away. Like you probably would want to bank a bunch of footage. That's true, right? So by the 1950s, the NFB began to make films that reflected government policies of that time. So what the government thought at the time was good was portrayed as good on screen. And Put simply, probably, yes. Yeah, yes. okay, interesting. Yeah. But the thing is, like in the 50s, you have the Canadian government putting into place things like the e-tag system in the north and the pass system. And of course, the residential school system was in full force. Right, right. Films like Northern School Days and No Longer Vanishing promoted residential schools and were even shown in residential schools to children. So let's take a listen. I feel like I'm just like, (laughs) it feels like I'm taking you through a haunted house right now. (laughs) Um, Okay, so let's take a listen from Northern School Days, a film that depicts a really sanitized version of what life was like for students at the Moose Factory Residential School. There are more than 200, and they're a lively bunch. On Valentine Day, there's a chance to dress up a bit and to use that flair for decoration that many of the Indian students seem to have. Individual talents get special encouragement from teachers at the school. Pupils with names like Jimmy Otter, Norman Icebound, and Abel Trapper soon learn that getting an education doesn't have to be sheer drudgery. The school at Moose Factory reflects the Canadian government's aim of trying to make the country's 150,000 Indians increasingly independent and self-supporting. Education is the keystone of this policy, and workshop training on such jobs as repairing motors has many practical applications in Canada's expanding north. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's high-level propaganda, high-level propaganda, and depressing. But I also think nobody can deny that. You know, there it is. Mm-hmm. You did that. There it is. Again, it's hard to see, but it's really valuable. And I'm glad it actually exists as a that it's on the screen for all of us to see, I think. Exactly. But things were changing. As Canada headed towards the 60s, there was a shift in the country. And that was felt at the NFB. I just wanted to take a break to tell you about another CBC podcast I think you might like. It's called Death in Crypto Land. It's a true story about a crypto tycoon, his secret past, his sudden demise, and an online sleuth's obsession to unravel the truth behind his mysterious company. You can check it out on the same thing that you're listening to this on or on CBC Listen. 
In the 1960s, Canada was attempting to find itself and define who it really was as a country. It was attempting to take a step away from its English roots and define itself. You know, the country was turning 100. Well, it's a bit late for a midlife crisis, Canada. <laughs> I know. Get a young lover and a red sports car like everyone else. <laughs> I don't know. Like everyone. <laughs> like we're all doing. I don't know why my midlife crisis is stuck in the 80s, it's but it like, is. I was going to say, it's like, it's like from an 80s movie where it's like Weekend at Bernie's or something. That's yeah, what I'm picturing. Yeah. Anyway, okay. that's a great film. Okay. So in 1960, the NFB released the film Circle of the Sun. And while it had the booming voice of God narration, about halfway through the film, we hear the voice of Pete standing alone, an indigenous man speaking. Yay, finally. Yes, finally. So in the 60s, we saw the creation of the Challenge for Change, also called Society Nouvelle. And this was a media program with a mandate to use film and media as instruments for social change. Challenge for Change was run through the NFB. The program produced activist documentary films and was really influential in how the NFB moved forward. They looked at topics like poverty, marginalization, and politics. Interesting. Challenge for Change helped to produce a number of films called dialogue films, and some of these were Indian dialogue films. And so what were Indian dialogue films? Like just a couple of Cree guys chatting or... I, I don't know. <laughs> yes. That's what I'm envisioning. Yeah, I would watch that. I would totally <laughs> I would watch that totally show. Watch that. It probably already exists on <laughs> TikTok so. or something. It's out there yeah, already. Totally. So these films, these dialogue films, films like Indian Dialogue, Indian Relocation, Elliot Lake, and Pow Wow at Duck Lake, they all seem really different from all the films that the NFB had produced prior to. You know, we started to hear Indigenous people and Indigenous activists were speaking on film. They were criticizing the government about the residential school system and they discussed the Indian Act. And it is just like, oh, God, it's so cool to watch. Um, you know, this is when we start to see people like Duke Redbird and Harold Cardinal on screen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Duke Redbird, he is an author, educator and mm -hmm. elder. And we interviewed him for our episode on the Bay Blanket. He's a legend. And... I do remember watching that film he was in and just thinking it's exciting to watch this group of young indigenous like badasses start questioning the system and pushing the system. It is. It's really striking to see these men on screen. Let's take a listen to a bit from Pow Wow at Duck Lake where some indigenous activists and leaders question a priest about residential schools. Oh, damn. Oh, it's so good. The religious people of any denomination have tried to keep their res residential school systems and have put these above the interests of the Indian people themselves. The Indians have never had a voice in their own education. Where, are the Indians, where is the Indian voice in the school boards? Where is the Indian voice in curriculum? I'm not condoning the curriculum that we have now. I'm just telling you, I admit that the transition from the, uh, the outdoor life of the, of the child from Wollaston Lake when he's put in a curriculum of Saskatchewan with the English language, is totally a different world for him. I admit that. It's but traumatic. I, yes, I know. But I'm telling you, you go out and, and, and organize a curriculum that will curb that. We're, we're trying to get people who will do that. Have the Indian people ever been asked to do that? Sure they've been. They have? <clears throat> well, I've yet to know about it. Are you ready to try and help in that? Yeah. What grade have you got? Well, how far did I go in school? Yeah. I dropped out in grade 9. Yeah. Why? 
right. But I'm not equipped. Well, Are you telling me that I'm not no, equipped no, no. to make uh, well, those kinds could, of decisions? You could, you could. You should have got your grade 12, but you're telling yeah, I, got I should have accepted <laughs> if the if the kind of school that I know. Oh, you blame the school. Been, well, oh, certainly. I see. You know? Because oh, uh, you blame uh, the school. Well, who else that? do you blame? Hey? Who else do you blame? When you want the you end the gumption to get through, you can always get through. Oh, come on now, Father. Don't, don't, don't come up with the gumption business. Wow, wow. I mean, that's so great that they're you know they're pushing and and questioning and that priest is you can tell he's just Mm -hmm. fumbling for a response and Mm -hmm. kind of doesn't Mm -hmm. he's talking a lot but he's not really saying anything like he's absolutely he's a bit absolutely shocked that people are pushing and questioning and it's great oh it's fantastic it's fantastic. And so at the end of films like Powwow at Duck Lake and these early dialogue films, these other dialogue films, the credits read. The films produced for Challenge for Change program are intended to stimulate discussion and to increase communication between individuals and groups involved in social change. You can tell I'm just like shaking with excitement about this because I just, mm-hmm. oh, God, it's so good. These films, they made me really excited and super pumped. But they also kind of made me sad because so little has changed. And the things that I mean, lots has changed. Lots has changed. But the words that they that these activists are saying are the same words, you know, that we hear land defenders saying today. Yeah, I can hear that in the clips. It's it's yeah. And while these films felt like a step in the right direction, they still weren't led by Indigenous creators. Indigenous people were still subjects, but not behind the camera. In 1968, George Stoney, who was the executive director for Challenge for Change at the NFB, he decided it was time to put the camera in the hands of Indigenous people. Stoney said, There was strong feeling among the filmmakers at the NFB that the board had been making too many films about the Indian, all from the white man's viewpoint. What would be the difference if Indians started making films themselves? So this is like groundbreaking at the time, right? Mm -hmm. So... This is the creation of the Indian film crew. I mean, it's obvious he was pushing for a good thing, but that seems... (laughs) Think about it in terms of today, like films, TV, hell, even theater, like even theater, representation and capacity is something that we're still trying to reach towards. You know, we don't have a lot of Indigenous film or television content. It's getting better. But, you know, uh, shout out to Jesse Winty uh, and the Indigenous mm-hmm. Screen Office for all the work that they've done. But we are behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the Indigenous Screen Office is run by Jesse Wenty, who is an all-around amazing man and change maker. He also loves Star Wars. That's just an aside. <laughs> um, you can Google him. He's a great, great person. And, you know, what that screen office has been able to do in a couple years for Indigenous content mm-hmm. in Canada and around the world has been really something. Yeah. So, yeah. So in 1968, we finally have the creation of the Indian film crew. The crew is sponsored by the Company of Young Canadians and the Department of Indian and Northern Affairs, which I think at that time was just Indian Affairs. And who was in the company or who was the Company of Young Canadians? It was a federal volunteer program that focused on empowering disadvantaged communities, communities that were battling poverty and disenfranchisement. Basically, they were young activists that had access to government funds. Okay, let's get that going again. Fired up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? It was a short-lived program. But, you know, it was the 60s and a time when, you know, I think youth in lots of part of the world really wanted to make a change. 
So the Indian film crew had seven members, six men and one woman. And how were they chosen? Was it an application process? Did they? Yeah, it was an application process. Um, And some of them were already tapped into sort of political movements, things like the Company of Young Canadians. So they kind of already had their foot in the door. All participants went through months of film training. It was pretty fast paced. And, you know, but once they were through that training, they were asked to pick a focus area, something that, you know, that they wanted to focus on, like lighting, cinematography, uh, directing, sort of pick a stream. And I was lucky enough to speak with a few members of the Indian film crew. So cool. I <laughs> you have no idea. Uh, anyway, OK, so this is Tom O'Connor. My full name is Thomas Clarence O'Connor, and I'm a band member from the uh, Wakwamakong Reserve in Manitoulin Island. So are you, are you ready to take a little stroll down memory lane? <laughs> if my memory can go back that far, yes. Okay. So I wanted to know how Tom got involved with the crew, because, you know, he would have been pretty young when he applied. I was with the company of young Canadians near the end of the 60s, 67, 68. One of the communities I was working on was the St. Regis Reserve. And I was working on the uh, the North American Indian Traveling College at the time. Mm. And I ended up at a meeting in Toronto at the Friendship Center. And I had met Eleni Zabonsuin. And she suggested I uh, put in my application because the film board was looking for Native people across Canada. And so I uh, mentioned to Mike about this film board looking for Native people. So we both took a trip to Montreal, put in our applications, and uh, a few months later, we, we got phone calls telling us that we were one of the seven that were selected from across Canada. So Tom's mentioning Alanis Obabsuin, and she's the Abenaki filmmaking legend. I, you know, we talked about her in the Ganesataki episode, and her films have been so... I mean, instrumental in everything. So she would have been around at this time at the NFB as well. Is that right? Yes. She wasn't a part of the Indian film crew, but she was definitely around and, you know, talking to members of the Indian film crew. Gotcha. So, you know, Tom joins the crew and then he works on a short film, The Ballad of Crowfoot, directed by Mi'kmaq folk singer Willie Dunn. um, And that was released in 1968. Comes the spring. And it's warm thaw Around your neck The eagle claw Upon your head The buffalo horn Today a great new chief Is born So the film is a set of still images, you know, that move across the screen and it tells the story of Crowfoot, a Siksika chief and, um, you know, The video is about all the colonial betrayals that he had suffered, uh, but it also ties into more contemporary issues. And it it is incredibly moving. It's very simple, but it is really, really moving. And the film is largely regarded as the first Canadian music video. Wow. Eat your heart out, Shawn Mendes, because I just saw that new video with him and Justin Bieber. And like they spent a million dollars on it. It told no story. I don't even think they were in the same room. The Indian film crew, you should have consulted with them. They beat you to it. So this film that we're talking about, not Shawn Mendes. (laughs) (laughs) So this film closes with this message. This film was created by a film crew composed of Indian Canadians who wish to reflect the traditions, attitudes, and problems of their people. 
And so when I was watching this film, I saw the credits and I saw Tom's name and I just like, I just spoken to him and I was like, I know him. I know that guy. It's very exciting. Calm yourself. Okay. So who are the other members of the crew? So you have Tom O'Connor, who is Anishinaabe, Noel Starblanket, who is Cree, mm-hmm. Roy Daniels, who is Ojibwe, Morris Isaac, Willie Dunn, who is Mi'kmaq, Mike Mitchell, who is Mohawk, and Barbara Wilson, who is Haida. So the crew represented many nations. Okay, so the crew is assembled and the first film comes out. And then what happens next? The crew travels the country and they kind of spread out and they begin making work. In 1969, You Are on Indian Land is released, a title that I just love to say over and over and over again. Um, So this work was originally attributed to another filmmaker, but in 2007, it was recredited to Mike Mitchell, a Mohawk filmmaker from Akwesasne. I got in touch with Mike Mitchell to talk to him about his experiences working with the crew and to ask him about that film, You Are on Indian Land. So the 60s, that was a, you know, pretty political time in lots of places in the world, uh, including Canada. Did you see the work that the crew was doing as political? It had potential. I mean, uh, we get to Montreal at the National Film Board. We trained there for a few months. After a few months, they sent us out uh, on location. And during that time, they... They gave us a camera and some recording equipment, and they said, go out and come back with something that you shoot. It's uh, of your own uh, uh, idea. Mm -hmm. I came home and I started um, recording some of the meetings. But at that time, there was this uh, issue with border crossing. At this time, Canadian authorities were prohibiting the Mohawks of Akwesasne from making duty-free personal purchases at the Canadian-U.S. border. Their reserve is sort of right on the American-Canadian border, so it's one of those complicated reserves. So this would take away the rights that were established by the Jay Treaty of 1794. Mike started recording what was going on, first at a few meetings, then at a protest. And uh, it became an international uh, situation because we blocked the bridge for that whole day, and uh, that the... Um, National Film Board crew came and and gave us a hand, but uh, we got to film all of it. You Are an Indian Land became a hot topic. Mike and the crew began getting invites to speak at universities all over Canada. So I was presenting and kind of like learning on the job at the same time, being at the other end in front of the camera, presenting, uh, explaining, got political meetings in Ottawa. So it was quite a... uh, experience, uh, if I can put it that way. Yet, despite the presentations and the political meetings, You Are on Indian Land was attributed to another filmmaker. They didn't want to give any recognition. They were afraid. Uh, The fact that it was my idea, it was uh, initiated, I did the storyboard for it and, 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 and did the presentation, got them to approve that it became a film project. Uh, but at the end, they said, um, we're only going to go with people who are permanent employees of the film board. You're, you're a training, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You're controversial. You know, we don't give any recognition at this time. That's stuff like that. But 50 years on, it was still a heavily requested film. So the NFB reissued it, this time giving Mike his proper due. I got the phone call saying, the man that was in charge that got the original credit as being the film producer uh, 
director, et cetera, said it's Mike Mitchell's film. It's it's his all the way. And um, so he wrote a letter to them saying, why don't you give him credit now? And he started a movement. His name was Mort Ransom. So the man originally credited for the film was a technician on the project. The actor had won a couple of awards that he uh, accepted in my name and in the film crew name. Uh, I always took the position that's not. He was just a technician, that the film crew was the one solely responsible. But those were the humps and bruises we went through at the time to uh, to get recognition, um, we were an oddity, and uh, we were treated as such until we broke through the barrier. Oh, man, that is enraging. I'm so glad he got recognized, but that would have been so actually really painful, especially at that time, because you would think, well, it's not, they're never going to recognize me if that's how that went. That's so terrible, but I'm so glad he got the recognition and we're saying it out loud now. Yes. And the film is still used as a teaching tool, and it really captures so much of what was happening politically at the time. You know, things like the Red Power Movement and the American Indian Movement. Right. And this was also the time, you know, Black Panthers were around. Yes. Yes. All of those movements were kind of coming together. They were grassroots, you know, led by Indigenous people in the U.S. and Canada. And they wanted to draw attention to a lot of the issues Indigenous people were facing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So these political movements would have been I guess, on the mind of many Indigenous creators and activists like the Indian film crew. Art and activism, as we know, often go hand in hand. For sure. And films like You Are an Indian Land, they screened both in Canada and the U.S. And they helped to draw attention to Indigenous land rights. The crew created a number of important works, films like These Are My People and The Other Side of the Ledger, an Indian view on the Hudson's Bay Company. Yeah. And like I said, we talked about that in our episode on the Bay Blanket. If you haven't seen it, you really should because Mm -hmm. and I don't know if we I don't think we've said this, but, you know, all of these films that we're talking about are free to watch on the NFB website. So it's a really amazing resource that you can check out. So I wanted to talk with the only female member of the Indian film crew, Barbara Wilson. Barbara has a really interesting perspective on so many things because she worked with the Indian film crew, but she also worked at Expo 67 on the Indian Pavilion. Stay tuned. We're working on it. (laughs) We've got something in the works on that one. Um, Listeners, Phelan Johnson is obsessed with Expo 67. I can't wait for this episode because... I'm not obsessed with it. I just think it's so interesting. We're going to find out. Anyway. So she has a really interesting perspective. Just, you know, like... And I think they all do because of everything that was happening at this time. Like, it very much... You know, like it does feel like there was something happening in these years, in these late 60 years Mm -hmm. in Canada and in other places in the world. But it's just, you know, to be able to talk to someone about that, it's just great. Hi, my name is Barbara Wilson. My Haida name is Peeljus. I come from the Haida Nation on the west coast of British Columbia, and I am presently working as an elected member of our Council of the Haida Nation. It's been a long time since I was part of the Indian film crew for the National Film Board. But I have to say that the memories are still mostly bright and and fun. 
we worked hard, we learned hard, and we traveled to different parts of Canada to see if we could effectively tell the stories of the different nations in their different areas. It was a pretty special time. I learned about cameras. I was really good with cameras. Dennis Gilson, who was the head of of, um, the camera department, when I was getting close to the end of working as an apprentice, he said to me, Barbara, I would hire you. Mm. You know, and for me, that was a huge compliment. The learning was just so amazing. I'm a professional school um, student, you know. I loved learning about lighting. I loved learning about cinematography, Mm -hmm. um, the editing, the animation, ideas about what can work, what doesn't. It was all mishmashed together, but it was just so amazing to be able to take ideas and and sometimes not have ideas because we were trying to record what people were feeling about how the world was mm-hmm. as First Nations. So just the challenge of thinking outside that box we didn't know we were living in, you know, is it was quite different. In 1970, the Indian film crew stopped production. Funding of the Company of Young Canadians was suspended and therefore funding of the crew stopped. But the influence of the crew, although short-lived, was deep. When I realized that I would actually get to talk to members of the crew for this episode, like I was so excited. These people changed the landscape of Indigenous representation just by speaking their truth. And I wondered if they knew what they were making, if they saw their work as political. So I know that the crew and Challenge for Change, that all started in the 60s, you know, a time when there was a lot of grassroots political movement going on and starting to really get underway. Did you see your work with the crew as political at all? Uh, Not at the beginning. Uh, Towards the end, we did. We were all on two-year contracts. So when our contract ended, wherever we were, that's where we were stuck. We were in Alberta. We're in a community called Loon Lake. We did a documentary there. And that's where we start to become uh, more into politics than anything else because of what we were seeing and what was happening to the Native people in that community. Yeah, we were taught how to use the media to express Indigenous issues, to bring it to the forefront, uh, go into places where you use the film media as, as a tool to represent the interest of your own people um, and uh, yeah so uh, there was very few indigenous people in the media at the time but we found a way uh, to uh, make it creative and make it effective Uh, I don't have anything negative to say about it uh, because we had to use uh, creativity and imagination to make it work and if you just wanted to wait for somebody to hand it to you, uh, it didn't. It didn't work. It didn't happen. You grab the bull by the horn and you do what you can with it. You know, and that's how we learn. And nowadays, uh, the equipment is in your cell phone. It's um, every, everything is so different nowadays. It almost seems like ancient history. I'm a real believer in if there's something you're meant to do, it doesn't matter what trail you take, you're still going to get there. And I did a lot of detours in my young life. 
and here I am, you know, I'm soon to be 78. Over the years, I've I've lived mostly at home since I left Montreal. And my dad lived until 2009. And so him and I spent a lot of time talking about language and what's right and what's wrong. Uh, when you look at language, how it expresses it. So I've decided that, you know, in my my final years of my life that I want to make a difference and pay forward. The combination of Expo 67, where everything was just fun, 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 and the National Film Board, which was two years of social justice, or definitely made a difference in my head about the rights and wrongs of things, you know. But it wasn't just the crew that was changed. The creative works that these filmmakers made changed minds, hearts, and laid a foundation for so much work to come in this country, and probably beyond. For many Indigenous people, stories are a big part of who we are. And being seen in an authentic way is massive. I know it. I feel it. Whenever I see an Indigenous actor on screen, I get so excited. There have been a number of films that have misrepresented Indigenous people over the years. And while they might seem funny or far-fetched, they are really and truly damaging. They can make us a dead people. They can make us not real. And when something is not real, when something is gone, then you don't have to care about it. Getting to know these works really changed me. And I'm really proud to have spoken with these filmmakers. It was good medicine. But the thing is, not enough people know about the Indian film crew. They may have heard about some of the films they worked on, and they may know the names of some of the crew members from what they went on to do in their lives. But many don't know this story. For me, watching all of these NFB films chronologically, it was really interesting. It was hard at points to go back to the 30s and 40s and 50s. But once I got to the films of the Indian film crew, it was like flipping on a switch and the lights turned on and I finally saw myself. The Secret Life of Canada is recorded in Toronto on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, Wendat, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit. It was written and hosted by me, Phelan Johnson. And me, Leah Simone Bowen. Our producer is TK Matunda. Our script editor is Yvette Nolan. Research assistance by Andrea Eidinger. Special thanks to Cody Savard. The digital producer of CBC Podcast is Fabiola Melendez-Carletti. Senior producer is Tina Verma. And executive producer is Arif Nurani. We are on Twitter at Secret Life of CAD and Facebook, Instagram at The Secret Life of Canada. If there's a piece of history you want to tell us about, email us at secretlifeofcanada at cbc.ca. And remember, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. And we just want to thank you for tuning in to another episode. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.